Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism without fear, favour or agenda. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey. I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney. And my producer today is Anthony Dockerell. It's a pleasure this week to return to talking about the work of journalists rather than the turmoil in the journalistic world. Let's make the most of it while we can. Our guest tonight is no ordinary journalist. Tom Wright is the with the Wall Street Journal, is with the Wall Street Journal, and is one of those journos that Hollywood might well make a movie about one day. I kid you not. He's a gritty, risk-taking reporter whose greatest hits include being among the first to arrive at the scene after the U.S. Navy SEALs killed Osama bin Laden and taking the lead role in the reporting of the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh, which killed over a 1,000 people. And now this. The remarkable story of the IMDb financial scandal which started in Malaysia, toppled that country's Prime Minister Najib Razak and his high-living wife, Rosmar Mansour, and revealed just how vulnerable the world remains to fraud on a grand, grand scale. And this is a grand scale involving literally billions. It has touched some of the world's largest financial firms, A-list Hollywood stars, supermodels, including our very own Miranda Kerr, casinos in Las Vegas, the music and film industries, property in the world's major capitals, and even the art world. There's even a very passing and innocent mention of Malcolm Turnbull's son, Alex, and James Packer, who, like Lowe, is a, is a suitor for uh, Miranda Kerr and the ANZ Bank. And yet the IMDb scandal centered on the fraudulent use of Malaysia's sovereign wealth fund has been somewhat underreported here and elsewhere, though honorable mentions should go to the independent Malaysia media outfit, The Edge, and separately to the reporting by journalist Claire Castle-Brown. They got a few scoops at the beginning. But what Tom Wright and his co-author Bradley Hope have done is tell this whole remarkable story of the scandal, which eventually sees the FBI in the U.S. attempting to seize $1 billion worth of assets, including mansions in New York, L.A. and London, the future proceeds of the film The Wolf of Wall Street, a stake in the music company EMI, all brought from the proceeds of stolen phones, all helped along by uh, Goldman Sachs. It's a breath- breathtaking story, and the book is called Billion Dollar Whale. It's a superb piece of long-form investigative journalism. Tom Wright, congrats on the book, and thanks for joining The Fourth Estate. It's great to be here. When you put it like that, it sounds like an amazing story. It is that, an amazing that's story. That's the best you I've heard of it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic story. I read, uh, read it the other day, loved every second of it. Um, how did you get into it? How did you start with this story? Well, you just mentioned uh, Claire Rucastle Brown. So in February of 2015, the Sarawak Report and uh, The Edge, they had this bombshell story about how Jolo, this this Ooh. unknown, basically unknown Malaysian financier, had taken $700 million out of a sovereign wealth fund um, and sort of purloined it and sent Ooh. it into the, these offshore accounts in, in the Seychelles and elsewhere. But that was just the beginning of the reporting. We, we, we then at the Wall Street Journal got involved and three years later, here we are. This is this is just an incredible tale. Um, at the beginning, people thought Jolo was perhaps one of these traditional emerging markets uh, bagmen for for the Prime Minister of Malaysia at the time, Najib Razak. But as it turned out, Jolo was the master conman. He was the puppet master. Mm. And uh, you know, I need to back up a little bit to explain. It. It's a very complex yeah, story. Yeah, just, yeah, let's roll it, roll it through. Roll it back. So yeah. Jolo, Jolo comes from the island of Penang. 
um, small island in the north of Malaysia. Came from a wealthy family. They were probably worth, you know, over $10 million US. And he goes to Harrow. He goes to Wharton, the business school in America. And he he rubs up against billionaires, Mm. people much richer than himself. So he's a mere millionaire or the son of a millionaire. Exactly. So he has wealth envy. And he's he's now in the world of the 0.01%, not just the 1%, right? This is the Sultan of Brunei's kids, for example. Mm -hmm. And he starts to figure out how those folk can help him and how they can connect him to uh, other wealthy people. And he, he, gets, he takes a semester off from Wharton, and he gets to know um, these, these movers and shakers in the Middle East, in the United Arab, Arab Emirates, yep. and he brings investment money back to Malaysia as a, as a broker, mm-hmm. which builds him credit with Najib Razak, who's then Deputy Prime Minister of Malaysia from a storied political family. Mm-hmm. Um, when Najib Razak becomes Prime Minister... And this is really the part that is beggar's belief. He persuades Najib Razak to let him set up a sovereign wealth fund, mm. which is a fund that manages the wealth of a country. Yeah, audacious, absolutely. But audacious. in this case, they don't have any wealth. They actually go onto international <laughs> debt markets and they raise it with the help of Goldman Sachs. That's... And then he steals it. It's remarkable. So let's just roll this back a little bit to where we first met uh, J-Lo in the prologue. I love the way you wrote the prologue. So he's 31 years old, is that right, in the prologue? Yes, it's he's his hosting birthday the, party. It's his birthday party. It's his 31st-year-old birthday. He's hosting this pre-party drink in, in a $25,000-a-night uh, apartment, attended by the likes of Leo DiCaprio and Benicio Del Toro. And later the same night, we run into Kanye West and Kim Kardashian and Paris Hilton and Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro, Tobey Maguire and the swimmer Michael Phelps, to name just a few. And he's got hundreds of millions of dollars to spend and he's chucking around. And yet, and yet, what is remarkable is that no one really seems to know who this guy is. Yes. How does he do that? How well, do... I mean, people didn't ask. So he does his first heist in 2009 and he goes out into Hollywood and he wants to set up a Hollywood empire. Um, he courts Leonardo DiCaprio. He offers him $400 million in, in film financing. He takes him on these crazy parties involving Playboy Playmates. And then he, and then he does, he just parties all the time, basically. It was part of his, well, I think he enjoyed partying, but mm. it was also part of his modus operandi to attract people, to make himself seem wealthy. Mm. And he had so much liquid cash. I mean, he took, um, you know, $4.5 billion, the Department of Justice believes, was lost in this scam, <laughs> right? And this is no pyramid scheme like Bernie Madoff's mm. scam. This was simply money taken. This is just fraud. Right. It, well, it, it's well, all fraud, stolen. but this was just money yeah. in liquid cash yeah. in his bank account. So yeah, he, yeah. he had a lot of money to spend on, I think in the first uh, year from the fraud, he spent $85 million on gambling, Yeah, yeah you, you say in the book he spent $85 million in about eight months. Right, so... It's incredible. You asked I mean, what, I don't why, know why you could do that. Why did people not <laughs> yeah, why ask they questions about yeah, him? That's right. Well, what I think Billion Dollar Whale shows is people um, don't care mm. when the money is coming, when the money's flowing, whether it's Hollywood stars who are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to attend uh, parties or MC, like Jamie Foxx is always MCing at his parties, or you know Paris Hilton's turning up for money. Or, you know, whether it's Goldman Sachs that's helping raise bonds and they probably missed red flags, although they say they couldn't have known where the money, the money was going to, be, going to be stolen. People just didn't ask questions. And because Jolo was Malaysian, it was very easy for people to say, well, we, he's an Asian prince or he's, a, mm. a money, he's an arms Isis. dealer or they didn't right. really – it, it was Orientalism. To, yeah, Orientalism. That's right. The other – yeah. This strange other man yeah. who must be something. And uh, we've all, we've, I'm sure you've seen that in Australia. You get a lot of you know billionaires coming from overseas and 
people don't necessarily ask a lot of questions about the source of their wealth. Yes, that's true. That's why we need journalists like uh, like yourself and and uh, Rukasa Brown, among others. So let's because I think you touched on it then. But before we go too far, I I should say this story is really about some very big transglobal issues and and also some big politics. You know, as we get through the book, there's there's you know a, a, there's Chinese influence. There's obviously the corrupting influence of greed on democracy, uh, in particular in Malaysia, uh, and and the dirty and disturbing portrait of a society, as you say, preoccupied with wealth and glamour. And I must say, reading the book made me feel a bit queasy and unexpectedly angry, which again is a great achievement in the book. So uh, is is global capitalism, without getting too high flown here, but is global capitalism so easily manipulated? I think it's broken. I mean, again, not to be too highfalutin or, or somber, but yeah, it's really broken. I mean, don't forget, this happened, this was playing out between 2009 and 2015. Mm-hmm. This was after the global financial the GFC, crisis yeah. Yeah. where the Wall Street banks had made their mayor corpus. You know, we're not going to do this again. We've ripped off um, home, ordinary home owners. But they went into emerging markets and it was called in Goldman, this policy was called monetizing the state. Right? This was the idea that you would find pots of money that, that states were managing. Yeah. Now, sovereign wealth funds today manage more money than private equity and hedge funds combined. Well, and some of them are well managed, like the Norway, Norway's oil famously fund. Famously, the Norwegian one. Yeah. Well, you have a future fund here, right? I'm yeah. sure it's extremely well managed. Absolutely. Well, sure. I know I'm nothing sure about it. Is. it. I know nothing I'm about sure it. sure it is. But, it's run but, by the former treasurer, you know. Right. It so, must be very well managed. It must be. I'm getting into territory you, I know nothing it's about. It's okay. We'll help but, you out. But... but um, the, uh, the preponderance of new funds mm. that, are, that, that, have, that have sort of increased in recent years are in places, are basically in kleptocracies, mm. in places in the Middle East, IPIC. This is a fund that, uh, that Jolo did business with. He, Jolo, so Jolo ran the 1MDB fund from behind the scenes. The prime minister allowed him to do so in return for that fund being a political slush fund for yeah. Najib. Yeah. And the way that Jolo took the money, he, he teamed up with other sovereign wealth funds including this IPIC in the Middle okay, East. Yeah. And the, it was audacious. The CEO of IPIC, a guy called Kadim al set up a fake IPIC, right? He was ahead of the real IPIC, but he set up a fake IPIC in the British Virgin Islands. And the money went there from 1MDB instead of to the real IPIC. So it fooled the auditors, um, the Western auditors that were doing 1MDB's accounts, mm. fooled the bankers. And this was Jolo's modus operandi. He would continually have these fake companies and these shell companies that looked like other companies. And he was, an, he was enabled by the global financial system because it yeah. should have been caught. He was encouraged and enabled by the financial system. Um, we'll get to this question you raised a minute ago, but you, are, you do work for the Wall Street Journal, which is a, you know, a, a wonderful institution. Of a, of, and yet you, it's seen as a place where it supports capitalism, but you just said capitalism's broken. Well, I work for the news side of the Wall Street Journal, not the editorial <laughs> pages. And in America, there's a, a there's strict a Chinese difference. war between the two. But I think, you know, everybody would, well, not everybody, but I would support um, rules-based capitalism, mm. right? Now, in the 1MDB case, I don't think for a moment you could say that anyone was really following the rules. There um, seemed to be no rules. Well, there were rules, but no one seemed to follow them, as you say. Right. So, for example, a company should be audited by a big auditor. Yes. Deloitte. The head of the of Deloitte, Deloitte was doing one MDB's books. Yes, well, they had and, three or four auditors. Well, they go through three auditors. Yeah. Deloitte are the sort of last yeah. auditors. Yeah, they, and and the head of their Malaysia practice tells them, "Look, I'll do your books, but I can also help you with your PR," <laughs> because he was he was pitching to get the more business with this big fund. Right. Everyone saw one MDB as this big new yes. 
a multi-billion dollar fund that would would you know there was there was a Swiss bank called BSI that Jolo basically took over. Yeah. yeah. And and used it to move money around. It's now been shut down. Yes, I see. So everyone wanted a piece of the action. Yeah. Great greed. Yeah, and, 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 you know, really the key actor here, and, and this is still to play out, is Goldman Sachs. Yes. So Goldman Sachs helped raise the money, yep. and investigators in America at the Department of Justice who, uh, who, who have opened yep. this criminal case into 1MDB yep. are now looking at what did Goldman know, what did Goldman bankers know at the time. You know, in the, in the best case scenario for Goldman, they missed red flags. At one point, 1MD, Goldman raises money for 1MDB, and 1MDB asks for that money to go into a Swiss bank account. Yes. Well, Sovereign wealth funds don't use Swiss bank. Yeah, why, why would you need to? Why when you're you the bank of the... Swiss banks the, are for hiding money from the tax man, right? So why would you do so? Or for managing your personal wealth. Um, and, and there was even dissent inside Goldman about this mm. at the time, about the high fees they were charging. But it got the backing. This is what's fascinating. The very highest levels of Goldman, mm. you know, from, from Lloyd Blankfein, who just stepped down as CEO, mm. and from their president, Gary Cohen, who went on to be Trump's economic advisor. And so... Uh, what happens now with with Goldman is is going to be very interesting. Goldman says, "Well, how could we how could we have known the money would be stolen?" Mm. But there's a question about the red flags that could lead to a big civil fine, mm-hmm. and then there's a criminal probe which is looking more closely at a partner called Tim Leisner, a former Goldman partner called Tim Leisner, who was the point man on the deal and was close to Jolo. Yes, yeah, so he makes a bit of a starring role in that book. Well, yeah, I mean, the fascinating thing about Leisner is after leaving the bank, and he left the bank after writing a a, a, a a letter for Jolo to help him open a bank account in Luxembourg, right. which said that Goldman Sachs had done compliance on Jolo when it had not. Wow. Um, and then subsequently, after leaving Goldman, he, he tried to help um, Leisner buy a bank in Mauritius. So <laughs> there's lots to look into, and, and you know, Leisner says he did nothing wrong as well, but right. that's all billion still to come. Wh- Billion-dollar whale, too. Yes. Um, let's get back to the, uh, the journalism bit. Uh, so you and, and Bradley did over 100 interviews in a dozen countries to make this book. It's a remarkable effort. What was the biggest challenge for you guys? Well, I think we at the beginning, we, the, few, the opening chapters were a little weak at one point because we had to show how did Jolo go from being this student at Wharton mm. to suddenly running a sovereign wealth fund. And we also didn't have the understanding of this when we first started writing the book. And we actually came... So I forget, you want me to get into the journalism yeah. mechanics of this? Yeah, yeah. Listeners? Uh, we, I think they'd be interested. We got hold of the emails of a guy called Yusuf Alotaiba. He is the current UAE ambassador to Washington. Mm. And we got hold of his emails for a reason, nothing to do with 1MDB. Okay. He, he had been the architect or a big supporter of the blockade of Qatar last year. Yes, sir. Okay. And, and his emails got hacked and we got hold of them. All right. And we learned from them that he actually was a big supporter of Jolo. Um, he, so when I mentioned, so you're already sort of on the Jolo case. We're already writing the book at this yeah, case. Yeah. Okay. And then up pops these emails that show hacked, hacked by WikiLeaks. Or? Uh, no, it's probably by some Russian. We don't actually know who hacked them. Um, we just know that they're real because right. we we um, the important thing here was we checked them uh, with Otaibas people and they said that they were real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. you know, so his emails got hacked. Yeah, and then they're fair game, right? Yeah. Fair enough. Um, and uh, the emails showed that Jolo. The, when Jolo took his semester off from Wharton and tried to make these mm. connections in the Middle East, Otaiba was his key mm. connection. And Otaiba um, opened doors for him in the Middle East with all these powerful people mm. that then invested in Malaysia. And whenever 1MDB needed something, Otaiba would help. So, for example, at one point, they need, they need a loan. Mm-hmm. So Otaiba goes to the Gulf banks and gets them to get a loan. Mm-hmm. And in return, we found out from other uh, investigative documents in Singapore that Singaporean investigators were looking at companies that were owned by Otaiba that received 
millions of dollars from companies that were owned right. by Jolo Associates. So a lot of what we did was triangulation. Yes. yes right? Like yeah, link, link. finding, yeah. right, finding, yeah. and it's extremely complex and took us, took us, you know, years to do, but, mm. you know, we're proud of what we achieved. Absolutely, yes, you should be. And I'm intrigued by, and you know, journalists listen to this story, will we'll also want to know, I suspect, what made people wish to talk to you? Well, in Malaysia, there were a lot of, there were a lot of government folk that were looking into Najib's accounts and the money right. and then were being blocked by the government because obviously Najib had a lot of power. He was able to control various institutions. There's not, there's, there are not the separations of power that should be there with the judiciary and the attorney general and others. And when we and the Sarawak report uh, had these, this exclusive about him, the prime minister receiving 681 million into his account. Mm. Najib reacted by firing his attorney general. Right. Um, so it became center stage political story. Right, and got rid of all these folks. So there were, there were a lot, of, a lot of enemies. Yes, and there were a lot of Malaysian officials who were unhappy with what, what was going on. And so they, they didn't just interact with us. They also gave information to the Department of Justice secretly right. Um, right. because the DOJ had started to investigate this because... Um, Jolo had, and others had bought so many assets in America mm. and used the American financial system. I see, I see. I so see. people people wanted to to give us information. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, I'll tell you what's really impressed me about this book and, and people listening, I mean, buy it for this reason alone, which is that it's very rare that you read a book that exposes the power structures within Southeast Asia and the Middle East like your book does. I mean, you mentioned Otaba, but there's several other people who are featuring here who, you know, I mean, I read a lot of international news, never, and I've never heard of. And so you're kind of lifting the lid on this this really quite opaque society. Um, and is that because, uh, well, I guess not to get, again, highfalutin, but is it because we kind of look through things in a sort of Western prism, and again, we tend to ignore, you know, the power structures in places that are harder to look at? I think in the Middle East, there's so much money. Mm. And it's rare that you, like you said, it's rare that we get a microscope on it. What happened here, um, Karim al-Kabesi, who I mentioned earlier, ran this fund in the United Arab Emirates that Jolo dealt with, ran, and he set up a fake uh, fund mm. right, to take the money. He's, gone to, he's now under house arrest or in jail in Abu Dhabi, right. which is also very rare. Normally, yes, th there's, in, in the Middle East, there's, there's, there's not a defined line between personal and private wealth mm -hmm. for, the, for the elite. But the, this, this scandal went beyond the borders of the United Arab Emirates and was a huge embarrassment to the ruling family over there. Um, Karim al-Kabesi um, is very close to another very senior royal who, for whom he did business deals. Right. And so it's touching right at the top levels and they're trying to, they're trying to, they put him in jail because they needed to do, take some action because this has become an international scandal. So it's almost like a spotlight got shone yes. on that kind of... Yeah, okay. And then the, and under pressure, the organism, as it were, pops up certain things or people or yeah. actions that you can then investigate. And there's the a fight space. now between Malaysia and Abu Dhabi about who, who really owe, owes the debt because this is, this, all this money was taken and there's these huge debt overhangs on Malaysia, mm. right, that the Malaysian people will have to pay back and they want Abu Dhabi to shoulder some of it. And so this, this sort, of, sort of came out into the open. Yeah, I mean, um, you're really writing, um, as I think it's your, the phrase you used in the book at one point, you know, the Wild West of capitalism really was Asia in the 2000s. And so not a lot has changed, right? I mean, this could happen again, in your opinion? Yeah, totally. I don't see... There's no reason why it possibly not... It could be happening now. No, somebody was telling me today that auditors in... The big auditors in China um, don't... Um, keep to the same standards as they would do in other places. Um, 
I think it's a huge problem. I mean, part of the problem is that compliance, there's a lot of self-regulation that's supposed to happen, right? If you're a big bank, you're not supposed to allow money laundering. But if you don't allow big money flows, then, you know, your commissions are lower. You're right. Um, so the whole system is vested to enable that to happen. Yes, and trillions of dollars. I mean, the other problem here is and this story is really a, one of the 21st century. I mean, corruption back in the day was much smaller because money flows were much smaller with interest rates having been so low in the West mm. for so long because of you know economic stagnation. Mm. That's created like just huge pools of money um, mm. that can be misused. Now, some people would say this is over the top and compliance is getting better. You know, we, I, we did a seminar in Singapore last week where somebody got up and said, look, I'm a compliance officer mm. and bank, bankers hate me and they say we can't do deals anymore because there's too much compliance. But mm. that's not what I saw reporting this story. And it's not what, I mean, in a sense, what you reported was, yes, there may well be this sort of, if you like, this public facade of this is, you know, compliance and all the things, things that probably affect um, the ordinary people, people like you and I. Well, if you're right, try to move a few thousand. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, you get in trouble if you move a few hundred bucks in this yep. country. But, um, but really what comes through the book is if you know the right people, uh, financiers and bankers are incredibly Im- easy to impress. I mean, at one point you mentioned the name of Coots, the banker to the Queen of England. And you say it's, it's, it's as if the funds had accrued their own integrity, integrity simply by passing through such a storied institution. So... Um, I mean, should, there should be. Is it that easy? Is it just a question of attaching? Well, you it know, seemed to be well, that he's, easy. Well, he starts off with Coots and Rothschilds. Yeah. And they do ask some questions. And he has to run around flying to Zurich to, uh, to answer questions and make up stories about investments that, you know, nonsensical. And Things then, that aren't happening. Yeah. yeah, and they shouldn't have got through. But in the end, those guys, those banks were trying to do some compliance. He ends up going down to the bottom of the food chain and he finds this bank BSI, which was this... Swiss, uh, Italian Swiss bank, right. whose business model had totally been blown up by the EU stopping you know, tax cheats, mm-hmm. stashing their money in Switzerland in the middle of the 2000s, uh, the aughts. And yeah, yeah. They, they try to build up a Singapore business. Right. And they, they're sort of unsuccessful. And then Jolo comes along and he's pushing billions of dollars, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars through BSI's Singapore mm. branch. Happy days for them. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 he was turning all of the, the bankers there into multimillionaires overnight. And that's, that's Jolo's trick, right? He, his first trick was knowing who's powerful and how to play yeah. off powerful people in the Middle East and Malaysia and get the cover of all of that, that sort of powerful politics. And then his second trick was knowing how to build allegiances by turning people's lives around. Mm. Like the bankers at BSI just changed their lives overnight. Yes, that's right. And so therefore they're going to be loyal and love everything he does. He, you, know, you didn't manage to sp- find him, did you? Because he's, no. he's somewhere in China, we think. Is that right. right. Well, he was in Malaysia until, uh, you know, the stories broke about him in 2015. Mm. And then I think Najib told him, well, get out of Malaysia. Mm. The, 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 it's too hot. And he was living in Thailand in the, in the St. Regis Hotel and in China, mm. in Shanghai and, very, and in Hong Kong. Mm. And uh, since so then, then in May of this year, right. Najib Razak loses the Malaysian yes, elections. Yes. And this changes everything for Jolo. Najib's now being arrested. Yep. Preventing from leaving the country. And he'll face trial starting early next year. Yeah, right. And the new Malaysian government is um, uh, cooperating with the Department of Justice in America, with Swiss authorities, with Singapore authorities to find out what was going on. Najib had, had sort of stonewalled all those investigations. Right, right, right. Jolo's now stuck in China we believe, where um, he seems to have some measure of official protection mm. because he did 
um, in the dying days of Najib's uh, government, he did some sort of corrupt infrastructure deals in Malaysia involving Chinese state-owned companies. Right. So he possibly still has some money. He definitely has some money. I mean, one reason we know this uh, is the billion-dollar whale, uh, there were huge attempts to stop the uh, distribution of the book right. by Jolo's lawyers. Okay, doing, so he's paying lawyers, yeah. Yeah, including shilling. Well, not directly, because it's a, it's a mystery to us because he can't use the global financial system but shillings in the UK and Cobra and Kim in New York are getting paid millions to represent him. And, you know, they've been sending these legal letters out to booksellers in Australia and elsewhere, um, threatening lawsuits, defamation lawsuits, if they even carry the book. But, mm. the, but you know, most people have ignored that. Yeah, good job, too. Um, does does J-Lo, uh, Jolo ever um, reflect on his... Kind of on, on himself, his actions. It's not really in the book. And is there any? Do you have any evidence he ever reflected on what the hell he was doing and who the hell he was? One one thing we really wrestled with was, you know, who is Jolo? Yeah. And we tried to play it very straight because, um, you know, yeah. we didn't, you know, he didn't give us an inter grant us an interview, although we asked him many times. I think he is ultimately a bit unknowable, mm. but driven by very strange demons somehow. I mean, you know, there, there are these scenes in the book where he goes into a shop and buys multiple pairs of the same black shoe. Right. But he will wear clothes until they're ragged because he's comfortable in them. Mm. Um, he, there's a sort of mania in the spending and a, and a desire not to be alone. So he's, he's often like calling, ensuring he has an entourage at all times, has six phones. He had a private jet, a Bombardier 5000. He would fly around the world almost incessantly. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if, I mean, we don't do this in the book because, you I mean, we don't want to um, do pop psychology, but it's almost as if he's, you know, chasing away from or trying to escape some kind of black dog or something, mm. you know, some some emptiness. Um, yeah, as you say, you don't do that in the book. And, uh, and that, one, one of the hallmarks of this book, I think, is that it's uh, very straight. I mean, you know, if you play it very straight, then you've got a lot of facts in there, a lot of details. Yeah. Back to that journalism, because uh, one of the reasons the scandal was so underreported in part is the local news media is largely controlled by the government in Malaysia. Is that changing? Is that going to change under this new government, you think? It does seem to have changed. I mean, there's still the problem there, I think. I don't think they've changed this, but the, the uh, newspaper's licenses come up for yearly renewal, which gives the government a measure of control over, over them. And, and you know, Najib uh, withheld the license for The Edge, which, as I mentioned, had yeah. been a, a key player in breaking the story. And uh, Ketat, uh, Ho Ketat, the... the publisher of The Edge was, was put in jail for a night around the time of the, when they first broke this story. But yeah, I, I'm seeing, I was in Malaysia uh, last week, and I'm seeing a difference. There's uh, the New Straits Times, which mm. is owned by Omno, the former ruling party, Najib's mm. former, former party. You know, they'd, rep they'd reported that this wasn't a story, that the one MDB story was, was kind of fake. Right. And now they're, now they're reporting on, you know, what I have to say about it or what the what the current government has to say about it. So there's been this 180-degree shift. Mm. Um, well, that's a positive thing then. Yes, and also you could argue that Malaysia was democracy was really on the brink. It had always been this quasi-democracy mm. with elections every five years. But Yeah, always the same party won. Always the same party in power since 1957, mm. which is independence from Britain. You know, a court system which is not independent. I mean, they have a lot of work to do, but for sure... Um, you know, if they, if Najib had stayed in power, you could argue that the, the democracy would have been further eroded. Mm, mm, that's true. The uh, the other, as we've mentioned a couple of times, Claire Rue Castle-Brown comes across as a very, very gutsy um, person. Yes. 
uh, for publishing that stuff. Well, she's it? she's one of the heroes of the book. You know, it's yeah, her and and the Edge. Yeah, and you know, to a degree, Xavier Justo, although his motives are a little less clear. Well, he he's he's the guy who wanted to uh, wanted money for the story. Yes, yeah, that's right. And she ends up getting money for the story in a roundabout way. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, well, the, the, I, I think, I, I think um, the Edge was sort of willing to pay for it, but no payment ever went through. Oh, okay. So no one ever paid for those right. uh, those documents, as far as I understand. Okay, that's interesting because that that was the, in journalistically that was the bit where I went, oh, yes, she's going to buy the information. Well, we wouldn't do, we wouldn't do that. Yes, but um, yeah. but that didn't that didn't actually happen in the end. So oh, okay. So good journalism takes a lot of time. You were fortunate to have it. How come? Why you, did the journal give me some yeah, time? Yeah, I mean, they give you. They didn't give you three years off, did they? No, no. I had I had four months off of right, unpaid leave. Of unpaid leave. Yes, but well, the, one great thing about the Wall Street Journal is it does invest in investigative work. You know, mm. my colleague uh, John Carreyrou had this book, Bad Blood, that came out this year about the Theranos blood testing yep, scandal, yep. which is going to be a movie with. Um, uh, uh, on who it's going to be with, but it's about Elizabeth Holmes, yes, this, yes, the, yes. who was the female Steve Jobs. A great, but, a great story. And her technology was, yeah. was sort no, of she was, uh, yeah. made up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and very similarly, he was given a lot of time to, to do exclusively that. So if you get onto a big story at the journal, they will let you, you know, dig mm-hmm. in and keep going. Um, and then, yes, they've been, they've been very generous with giving me time off to work on it. Um, and when you were reporting it and when you were working... You were reporting other things at the at the same time, right? I was a little bit, but uh, I would have been like you know eighty percent right. on this story, and you know more recently I've been doing North Korea. Okay, but um, uh, no, this was this became sort of like a full time gig. Yeah, well, that's a that's a great blessing, a slightly rare blessing these days, I suspect. Yeah. What's your um, people listening to this who are thinking about journalism or in journalism at the early stages? Um, I often ask people this: Do you have any advice for them? You know. Here you are, written this incredible book, traveling the world, you know, to promote it, rightly so. Um, and you're still a relatively young man, uh, compared with me, say. I'm older than I look. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we have to kill that portrait in the ethic. But, um, uh, what's, you know, there's a lot of glamour, in, in a sense, in this chase, yeah? I mean, tell me why journalism for you, and what would you say to young people thinking about it? Well... I mean, I think journalism is fun, mm. foremost. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't do it. I mean, I think you you can sort of approach it from that changing the world uh, way if you want to. Um, but I, what I like about it is, you re- as a journalist, you really get into the room with really interesting people. Mm. Um, you get to meet powerful people, mm. and then you get to hold them to account, right? Because yeah. The only real yardstick that we have, I mean, you and I, in, in the way we look at journalism is, is it true or is it not true? Mm-hmm. People keep, you know, when we first started reporting this, people were saying, well, you are uh, politicized. Because Na- Mahathir, who's now prime minister, was attacking Najib, the former prime minister. Mm-hmm. So this, they had an, there was an internal political battle going yes, on. Yes, yeah. And this was being levied at, at us, not just by, you know, the prime minister's office, Najib's office, but also by, you know, a guy who worked for... Uh, the PR firm Brunswick, mm. right? It, saying that we were politicized. And n- nothing gets you more angry as a journalist when one does that. And I know you have a very strong culture here in Australia of independent journalism um, and aggressive journalism. Mm. You should be able to ask any question, Absolutely. right? You don't have to... You, powerful people shouldn't be allowed to control what you ask. Mm. And they have to be held accountable. I think that it, that is, you know, very important... 
a thing for a democratic society. And in Malaysia's case, the fact they did not have that was what allowed all of what we've been talking about today to, mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. And perhaps now, you know, the, it, there's some great news station. There's a, there's a radio station called BFM in Malaysia. It's doing great work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, they will hold the future leaders to account. Well, journalism with con- consequences, what we're talking about really, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Tell me uh, f- a final question. Uh, the owner of the Wall Street Journal, uh, Rupert Murdoch, has he been in touch to congratulate you? Uh, himself? Yes. No, but I've had congratulations from uh, from Will Lewis and others who are very high up in the organization. Indeed. Will Lewis is the you know uh, chief executive of indeed. the Dow Jones. Yes, indeed. Okay. Well, I, well, let me add um, our humble congratulations to theirs, and thank you so much for coming uh, from the on the fourth state this evening. Hope you have a great trip, and uh, and I hope you sell lots of books. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. It's been great being here. Well, thank you. Um, and that's all up from us for the Fourth Estate this evening. Um, make sure you subscribe to the Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast so you can hear us talk media, politics, and a few things in between another time. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Anthony Dockrell has been uh, the producer this evening, and my name is Peter Frey, and thank you very much for listening. Good night.